Hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit about your company and your role within it. Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm Harry. I am COO at a company called Homebox. Homebox is a, a effectively a bill bundling company. Uh, it was founded six six or seven years ago by our, our two founders, Will and Jack, uh, who were at university, lived in I don't know six, seven, eight bedroom houses, and had that like horrible pain of of trying to manage utilities amongst multiple people. We have sort of grown organically from then uh, to the size we are now, which is around sort of 70 employees. We'd never done a fundraise until earlier this year, which we're sort of still slightly going through. Um, and that is kind of the, the, the company at its core. We, we manage, we set up, bundle and manage all of the utilities for, for tenants in, in households. So energy, council tax, water, TV license, broadband. We are effectively a sort of fintech company. We create a bank account at a per household level. Tenants pay their share into that bank account, which we then automate the payments out to the individual suppliers. I think that's sort of where the company is today. Um, and we've been scaling scaling really well. I think we've got you know several thousand households, tens of thousands of, of tenants on the platform looking to, to sort of crack on and, and scale with that. Where it becomes really interesting is sort of the where we go in the future. So so my role is is chief operating officer. I came in in December last year from from a background in in really retail retail banking and finance. Um and I think that's where where the future of the company lies to be honest. I think in in banking we're seeing I, I might go on a bit of a tangent into the world of banking and then bring it back to to where Homebox sort of fits in. So, so I think over my time in banking, I, I saw a sort of disaggregation of, of retail banking by which, I mean, probably 20 or 30 years ago, most people would have a, a, a current account with, with a high street bank. They may have their mortgage there, their car loans, and they, they really used that current account as a uh, an anchor product from which the bank would then cross-sell other financial products to them. We're starting to see that that disintegrate a little bit. The sort of job to be done of a bank account being a current account or, or savings as a sort of store of, of money with you know, various liquidity thresholds and various pricing, depending on, you know, do you want your money today or do you want to lock it in for a set amount of time? That The banks have sort of relied on those current accounts as that anchor product to, to sell other products to. But 10 years of, of fintech innovation have, have really decentralize that model so if i look at my own sort of landscape of finance today i've got a current account with a high street bank my mortgage with a different high street bank i've got a car loan with john lewis i've got sort of several challenger bank like day-to-day spending accounts i've got insurances with you know car insurance with one company home insurance with another contents insurance bundled with my home insurance but i've probably got contact with eight to 10 financial institutions. So that sort of high street hegemony of owning the financial landscape is is starting to disintegrate. Where things like open banking enable companies like Homebox sort of massive scope is is down the embedded, embedded finance route. We can be m- much more valuable to customers and have a much better customer experience by offering financial services closer to the product that they're trying to do. So in our case, we everything we do is around the home. If we can build trust with a customer paying their rent through our platform, paying their utilities through our platform, we tie open banking data to that. If we can build trust over several years from them being a 
student through to their their early stage career you know they might move to london work for a big company have to pay their rent then you know by the time they're in their late 20s they're looking at buying a property getting married we've got that track record of data we've got the trust of the those customers and we can offer much better tailored solutions than the banks which effectively have zero stickiness and somewhat controversially i mean they're pretty undifferentiated it's, it's almost a commodity product at this point they're kind of only differentiated by brand there's a big green bank a big blue bank a big red bank the the, the offering is is relatively indistinct yeah and you, so your background is in finance and obviously yeah. for someone who, who studied finance university like the pinnacle of that when you're there is like the big banks yeah right? you know the, the likes of hsbc and Obviously, you came to the realization that maybe you wanted to be part of something a bit more disruptive, part of a startup, doing something different. Talk me through that thought process and why you did it. Um, Yes. Why did I do it? Uh, (laughs) I think I've always been a a bit of a a contrarian. Um, It's... I think when you're in these institutions, I spent five years at a big high street bank, um... At senior manager level, you you realise there's a lot of of sort of fluff that goes with that work. You're not you're not really moving the needle much on a day to day basis. Uh, a desire to 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 do more to to sort of have real ownership of the work you're doing. These sort of seem seem quite cliched reasons, but but it does sort of take a, a somewhat heretical view to to jump out of a very safe finance job and and all of the the social signalling that sort of comes with that. It, it's hard to to throw that to one side. It, interestingly, my I've got a seven-month-old child. He was born in, in January. I The bank I was at introduced a 20-week a full-pay paternity leave. And I quit my job there one month before I would have had 20 weeks on, on full-pay doing nothing. And I, I think that sort of stands for just how much I wanted to, to get out and do real work. Obviously, there's the everyone goes into sort of startup life with with the, the the big vision. I think there's you know there's an attraction to that. I'm, I'm I've got equity in the company that I'm at. So it's you know I took a took a pay cut to go to it, but you sort of you you look at the long term and and think the long term dividends pay pay more than than a career sort of turning up and it just being another Tuesday at the office and and it's sort of more of the same every day and having the same conversations every day. I think that being said, like that, there's massive, massive comfort in working for a big company. There is a, a strict hierarchy. A lot of people are, are best served going into that world. I think there's a, as much as there is social signaling going into a big company of, of that I sort of maybe slightly threw some shade at just then, you know, for a lot of people, they, they want to go through that very linear progression of they went to a good university, maybe they got a master's. They they take the job in management consultancy, then they go and work in-house at a, a financial institution. And there's as much signaling in doing that as there is in sort of negative signaling in, in standing against the system and saying, I'm going to work in a startup and I'm going to wear a t-shirt to work and, and the, social, the social cues that that gives off. I'd like to think I'm sort of not in startup for the just the appearance of working in, in startups. Um, it's definitely more glamorous from the outside than it is on the inside. Uh, when people tell you it's it's 
you know, all the cliches are true for a reason. All of the, it's long, hard hours. It's, it's a slog. It's stressful. It's because it, that is, that is sort of incredibly true. Um, First of all, congratulations on the baby. Thank you. Uh, and second of all, obviously you found Homebox maybe later on in, in your career. And I wonder for our audience listening, when was it that you realized that startups was even, like when we even educated about yeah. their existence and that being a, a feasible route? So I think it's 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 very easy to... If I was to, to lay out my, my my profession in life, a sort of state state primary school, then I went to uh, a private secondary school. Um, I think once you're in a private secondary school, I, I don't if privately educated or yeah, I think there is that that expectation then that you you go on to university. It's almost unsaid. Uh, if I look at my my classmates at school, I could probably name on one hand out of 150 people in my year those that didn't go on to university. So undergraduate degree at at a Russell Group University, master's degree at a former Polytechnic University, and then into working world, as I said, sort of spent some time in management consultancy, spent some time in, in finance. I, I think it looks very linear and, and predictable if you sort of lay it out like that. But but look, I, I think I think most people are obviously more complicated than that. I've I I come from a relatively middle class background my my father was in in the navy my mother worked in hospitality i'm the first of my direct family to go to university so not from sort of masses and masses of money but but certainly not from working class background i went to private school based on massive parental sacrifice and um scholarship yeah that that makes a big difference my my father he left the Navy, worked as a, a pilot at, at Felixstowe docks, um, so had a lot of time to do other endeavours. And he was he was pretty entrepreneurial himself, whether that was sort of trying to, to property development. He he got involved in startups and, and always sort of, I was exposed to that from a young age. And I think a lot of people in entrepreneurship or in startup worlds have had that exposure at a young age to sort of even know that it's, it's possible. Um, I guess what I what I sort of haven't laid out in my career was I, I founded a company before I went to university and ran that whilst I was doing my undergraduate degree. Um, like in, in hindsight, it was a great idea. We had a great opportunity. Um, I ran it for three or four four years and worked with some massive companies, but I just didn't have the did not have the sort of level of of knowledge or ability to do that anywhere near justice. Um, but I think you have to sort of fail as, as you go um did my master's to try and sort of give myself I, I spent too much of my undergraduate degree running my company and, and having a good time at university rather than probably focusing i did my undergraduate degree in, in english literature which does you know I, you know people say sort of do what you love at university i think it, university has a great way of of killing the thing that you love when you're forced to do it day in day out and you're being forced to read books that you don't don't want to read um so how did I get into it? I, I think I've just, I had that exposure to it at a young age. I, I think unless you know that it's possible and these, these jobs are out there, it's, it's very, very tough. I think, you know, films like The Social Network sort of presented a whole generation with this, this vision of what startup life is like and what's possible. Um, 
I mean, that was I'm I'm 30 now, so that probably came out when I was around that that age of of looking for it. And I think it, it's almost embarrassing to say, right? But but those big cultural moments can can sort of inspire people. Um, so yeah, I think that that was probably my my exposure to it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about your time at university then, and and actually starting something while you're there because yeah, you know, I I can relate to that. I I feel like there's obviously spring week summer internships but in terms of like actually gaining career experience you kind of have to make it yourself yeah. or you know look in places that most people don't normally look and yeah I, I want to in that, in that process of, of of building something did you is that when you really learned that I can't deal with the red tape and like the this you know you'd prefer yeah. more streamlined like actually get stuff done attitude towards your career I think so. I, I think that university itself was a a wake up call. And I, I've got relatively. Um, it might not be the you know, <laughs> I might not be the best guest for your audience. I, I have relatively negative views on higher education. Um, I'm not sure. I I've gone a tirade against university for <laughs> five ten minutes and then and then bring it in. But I I think. A lot of university education today is sort of driven by uh, sort of mimetic desire, a, 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 a drive to present yourself as, uh, as an educated class of person. Um, I think there is a lot of, of smoke and mirrors in the actual quality of the education it provides, the exposure to real world practices. I'm, I'm speaking very generally. Like I think there are four or five universities that are exceptional no matter what course you do. There are clearly courses at universities like STEM subjects, like those, you know, very vocational subjects which which are exceptional. But sort of my experience as a humanities student at a Russell Group University was like a few hours a week for an insane amount of money and and very little um value add out of it. I think, you know, the the reading that I did, I very much turn into goodwill hunting here like i could have got myself from a you know just going down the library and, and taking out the books uh and i think nowadays I, I i i really value that sort of autodidact that that self-taught person who who can be somewhat contrarian and, and not go to university i think that's that's very powerful that said i think there are instances where experiences during university present themselves in, as, as someone hiring your experience at university can be very valuable if you do more than just simply turn up and do it. And, and I think that was probably what I, I looked. I wasn't getting what I wanted out of university. I had the urge to, to do something for myself. Um, I didn't really have exposure to the working world. I, I, sort of, I didn't know what opportunities were out there. I think had I known earlier on in my career more about the world of banking or stuff like that, I probably wouldn't have done English in the first place. I would have been a little bit more focused and and driven. I think as with most people, you sort of end up in where you are in your career almost by accident. Um, yeah, I, and, and I think you're never going to have time like you have when you're at university to do something for yourself. Um, it's very hard to appreciate that in the moment because, you know, what's in front of you, your coursework, your exams, your lectures feels like the biggest thing in the world, but you're never going to have that much time between those things ever again. Um, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I disagree strongly with one of the things you said, and wholeheartedly agree yeah. with everything else. So the thing I disagree on is that you're not the ideal podcast guest. Because oh, thank you. 
this is the exact reason I did the Gadget Guide, right? Is that authenticity of voice. And I don't, I feel like we're, we're fed so much career advice where they say what you think people want to hear instead of saying what you actually yeah. genuinely think. And that isn't helpful to anyone because, you know, one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is that, you know, like you said, university is for some people, but there are a lot of people like me and like yourself. And, and then it's like, what do those people do? Yeah. Um, and, and who's giving them that career advice? Um, so yeah. And I think my sort of own personal opinions on university, having just been through it is like, so you haven't got gone to UCL, it's a, a very good university and, and some subjects get more education than others, whether it's yeah. content hours or investment into the classrooms or whatever it is. But generally the name that you get from it, it it's something that you can't generate like yeah. by yourself and like having UCL on my LinkedIn or whatever, like that's a superpower and people can create that superpower from, from a different thing they start on some of themselves, but it does just help being given that. Um, but yeah, so I want to ask a little bit more about Homebox yeah, and sure. your, your journey within that. People, when they think about startups, there's less, it's less obvious the steps to grow within the company, like in big corporate companies, it's like you work two years and yeah. you get this qualification. How did you actually grow from your first role to where you are now? I joined a COO and that was, that was purely because I knew the founder pretty well. We'd already had a very shared vision of, of where we wanted the company to go and I'd, I'd spoken to Jack for several years before before coming on board um, and when it started to scale he sort of called me up and said now's the time would you like to to jump and you know then you can take that more like balanced view of I, I kind of knew deep down in my heart that I was I was at the bank because I had got married I had two children I you know you wanted that safety net of of a corporate life um, which will probably sort of hint at where I'm going with this the so so I joined, I joined our COO and I think that was uh, a massive wake up call. I, within my direct remit, I've got marketing operations, obviously customer service, finance, most legal things fall under me. A lot of the sort of day to day running of the company falls under my remit. Um, but in terms of uh, the progression, we're very, very quick to, to promote in the company. I think um, it, it's, part of our obligation actually those joining a startup take on massive massive personal risk like i hope investors aren't listening but like we could go bust tomorrow like we're not going to but you're a startup you're you're operating at the at the edge all the time you're trying to balance growth and and operational excellence and which do you prioritize where do you where do you invest it it's it's really tight a lot of the time um and those who are willing to give it a shot need to be rewarded. Like it's very safe to go and join a big corporate company, you know, one of the big four accountancies, a bank, uh, you know, any of these like sort of cliched, let's say city based jobs or, or, you know, even, even in, in other towns, but, but those graduate jobs where there's a defined graduate scheme, as you say, it's a hierarchy, it's a progression. It's, it's almost like military and it's, it's progression. It's you do a certain amount of time at this rank, then you climb with a sort of, ever decreasing pyramid we if someone's good enough they are they are old enough i think if you look at the people we've hired we've hired people in at the bottom rung of the company and promoted them to heads off within six months it's 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 not purely done on a charitable basis like i do think we have an obligation to reward good behavior but we need to look for those like 
areas that we can compete unfairly. And if someone is not going to get a chance because of their age or their experience, and we can we can give them that at an earlier age and get more out of them and try and sort of foster that loyalty, then then you know what, why not? Um, I think you and I have sort of spoken before about international students and and hiring of international graduates, and that's another area where we think that we've got an unfair advantage. There is a a perception in the in, and I'm not really sure why. I, I, I think after after Brexit, there's this two year graduate visa that's been brought in. There's a perception amongst many employers that it's just difficult to hire people on on visas or expensive, and and it's just simply not not true. And you know, whether it's sort of lack of awareness in hiring departments or probably more likely just sort of laziness and that they just don't really look into it that they don't want to hire international graduates so so we have a massive unfair advantage there and that you know we've hired six international graduates in the past six months two of them have been promoted in that time it's it's a channel for us that that is just so obvious and logical it's not you know it's not some sort of great political statement on my behalf to say I'm going to go and hire international graduates rather than British graduates. It's just purely out of self-interest. It makes more more commercial sense to us to 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 go for that audience. Um, I think it's trying to just be more logical with things than a lot of a lot of big company behaviour is driven by formality or these sort of perceived rules of of not putting yourself forward, paying sort of being quite deferential to your boss and and not not sort of putting your head above the parapet and waiting your turn and and doing it but in the kind of you know when you've got to survive you 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 just want people who can turn up do the job and 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 go home at the end of the day and it's done you don't really care about their age their backgrounds their so we've sort of got this this phrase around like a radical apathy to someone's background which is just doesn't matter if they come through the door they can do a really good job don't care of of how old they are, where they come from, what job they've done before. We've got Oxford graduates and we've got people with with no formal education who have come straight out of school and they're working at the same level. Um, yeah. Yeah, I want to pick up on two things you said there. The first being that when you started as CEO, you said it was a bit of a baptism of fire and that like, yeah. you go from like this finance background to having to do more than just that. So... Um, See that's that that's you know potentially a bad thing about startups and like maybe not prepared but also a good thing because that's the best way to learn is kind of being thrown in the deep end with a supportive team around you. Yeah. And then the next thing is that, with that being said, international students will hear what you're saying and they'll think, oh well, then I'm just going to apply to Homebox. Like you know they they support us, whatever. But like, not you can't hire everybody. So and given that you're hiring people from formal education and and, and different backgrounds like you must have a very like specific idea of who you're looking for and how they can stand out so what 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 is it they can do to stand out if they are applying yeah um it's a good question i think one i, I think something probably i didn't refer to in the last one but but just being an international graduate in this country is a signal in itself that you you have above other graduates you have taken it on yourself to travel away from your home country to to probably go to a country a city where you're probably not speaking in your first language every day you're being taught in in a language that's that's maybe you know but it's not your own you're being examined on that to a you know to a high level if you're a master's student an exceptionally high level um you have had to set yourself up in a country and 
you know sort out all the things like bills that we do but but all the other the bits that go with that in a different culture and and you know that there's a degree of autonomy that that comes with that which is very very desirable in a startup anyway i think the the real behaviors that we look for are proactivity so you've sort of got that that slightly ticked by doing it but how do you come to the interview armed with really in-depth understanding of who we are as a company what we do as a company where we're growing as a company it's watching things like this sort of understanding where we as the leadership team are driving the company um look is it that valuable to you when you actually get get down to the job like probably not on a day-to-day basis but again it's a it's a signal to us that you've you've put the work in and you're that type of person that's going to to do it um I am a big, big fan of people who uh, I sort of said about that self, self-taught self nature um, before. Those that can not just expect their degree to give them everything they need when they turn up for a job. Like, I think if you want, you know, I would say even rather than doing an undergraduate for, degree for most people, like if you're 18, go and and you want to work in a startup, go and look up what free SQL courses are out there. Like, how can I get into like business intelligence and data analysis and, and you know, learn the skills that startups are, are looking for, you know, particularly in operations, those those sort of things are, are fascinating. So go and look at database design and, and how you can interrogate databases and then come armed with, with those skills because they will serve you. They might not be the core of your job, but they're going to be those those skills that you just demonstrate that I understand what the company's looking for. It's what I want to do. And I've and I've gone out of my way to to show this. Um I think so we sort of it's a bit cringy sort of resorting to these these little like phrases, but we, we call it three Ps. So it's it's proactivity, professionalism, like by and large, graduates that we encounter in interviews are, are pretty professional. Um you know, for for as much as I've sort of slagged off universities, graduates compared to non-graduates as a as a cohort are pretty dependable. You know, the the there is a a self self sort of um, strictness that comes with having to go through university and, and and go through it that that maybe younger candidates don't have if they're coming straight out of school or or from a a career where they haven't sort of had to demonstrate it. So, so just professionalism, you know, can we take you to an industry event and, and you stand up and, and represent the company more, you know, more applicable in some roles than others. Um, productivity, uh, no, sorry, productivity, uh, professionalism, and then pride. Like how do people very hard to demonstrate an in interview apart from sort of talking about experiences you've done outside of work, but how do you actually take pride in your work? How are they that type of person that is, not going to stop a job until it's done and, and done very very well. Um, I don't I don't love interviews as a as a means of hiring. I think it's very easy for exceptional candidates to interview very badly because they're not always the most most confident or the most um, just you know depending on your background. Some people just don't present themselves in a way that that sort of lends itself well to interviewing. And then you get some people and and sort of not to generalize too much but i find men are particularly bad at this are very confident they look very assured in an interview and and just just can't be rubbish at the at the job when it comes to it so i it's tough we try to we try to set tasks we try to set presentations um to sort of get people thinking deeper about the topics ultimately you probably do have to interview quite often in interviews you know within the first sort of five minutes whether it's a 
oh, I quite like this person or the worst of the sort of, yeah, this person is, is not going to get it and you've got to at least stay there for the next 30, 30 minutes. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think weirdly a superpower of mine um, is that I actually never found in education, both at school and university, something that just came really naturally. Like, that, you know, I didn't have that innate ability to do timetables or maths or so I didn't just get science. Like, so I yeah. ended up doing history because it was something that like is was within your means to work hard and, and you can produce results. And yeah, and that's kind of what essay subjects are. But for the startup world, I think um, why it suits me is it, I had to be curious. I, I had to think about other ways to find out what I was good at. And I, I really believe that everybody can do that. But people that do have those innate abilities sometimes struggle to actually like the, the comfortableness yeah. of just operating within what you're good at like it stops a lot of people from even considering other career routes when actually i think you know startups are disruptive and you know as much as big companies can sometimes do big things that startups can't like we as startups we fill a void that needs to be filled so yeah i i, I really encourage any student listening to this, just have a think about any other skill that you might have that's not a traditional one. Like, are you good at speaking to people? Yeah. Are, are you good at building a team? Like all these things you won't know until you try. Um, and I guess for you in in your in your job and and in your company, how how do you like to manage your team and, and cultivate your team to bring out? those those new learnings and, and make sure it's not just that one thing they're good at that they're learning yeah that's a that's a very good question and, and i think there's um i'd probably be quite philosophical about it and i and i i, I tend to be on a, a bit of a daily basis in that is our duty to train people up and to help them progress um or are we sort of more more utilitarian than that and actually do we need to find good people in defined good roles and we want them in that role doing their job and i think it depends on what you want to do as a company um are you running a company for two to three years to sell and and maximize the amount of money you make in which case there's probably not much point in going and hiring young people training them up developing them because you just haven't got time you, you might as well just go out and hire you know 18 players from day one have them come come in do a job for two years and and happy days you all sell out and make millions of pounds hopefully uh i think rarely is a is a startup that 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 clear i think most of the time you're you're sort of planning for the long term and and seeing what happens when you're there uh i would say one of my my strengths is is my ability to to delegate um it sounds like one of those sort of like fake strengths that if people go oh, i'd be brilliant to delegate because you don't have to do any work but actually when you care about something deeply it's really hard to not micromanage and and dive in and you really have to sort of force yourself to to stay out of the weeds trust the people around you i think hiring very good direct reports who can who can pick up the job you can give a high level I, again i think leadership have to be strategic and then you can rely on the sort of people beneath to be more tactical and, and pick up the day-to-day -day work um i've i've got exceptional direct reports um who Luckily, but you know they were already in place when I came in, and and I haven't had to go through that very painful process of of hiring in people. I have in in one area, um, marketing, just didn't exist. So, 
sort of went out and, and got someone that I'd worked with before who I knew is very, very good. Um, and, you know, sometimes it is just better the devil, you know, just go and find good people. In terms of in terms of, of nurturing talent, I, I think one just being in a startup environment does that by default because you're exposed to so much breadth of work on a day-to-day basis. You know, we're, we're about 70 people. That is still small enough that when everyone's in the office, you're overhearing conversations. You're naturally getting involved with with projects that that span multiple functions. Very rarely is a is any particular task isolated to one one product area or one one subdivision of the company. You're normally, you know, if you're in operations, you're normally working with product or data or the tech team. Um, customer service will be sort of dealing with marketing, and and like there is this like cross fertilization of skills within the company all the time, anyway. So, and then I think it's just being very open. I try to have um, some contact with nearly everybody in my team, whether that's that's direct reports or or their direct reports. And I think then it's about um, it's sort of that like Andy Groves. Have you ever read High, Up, High Output Management by Andy Groves? But like a bit of a Bible. It's kind of not even, it's not, it's not easy to find in print, but you can get like digital versions of it. And he's got this thing about um, like management by walking around. It's just like going around the company, seeing what people are doing, hearing the problems people have. Uh, and again, it's like one of those fake things. You're like, oh, my boss is just walking around not doing anything. <laughs> but you kind of got to think of like the big picture. And then it's it's giving people like horizontal opportunities as well as vertical. Um, we've, we've been hiring for a team lead position this week and there's only, you know, there are limited spaces to go into, but then all the candidates that want that, it's about, well, actually you've got skills, but are they better served elsewhere? Can we give you some time sitting with this team over here? Um, like within reason, you've got to balance the company company needs against their own needs. But I think as long as you are thinking deeply about these things and and not just expecting people to turn up, turn out eight hours of work a day for you and, and go home and treat them like... I, I wrote an essay on, on my blog about, about sort of human resource not seeing seeing people as resource and and i it's something that really annoys me about big corporate companies is is that actually you're just a cog in a machine and and you've got to look at people being more rounded than that then humans are not logical beings there's sort of i sort of spoke about mimetic desire earlier and, and that kind of philosophy of of i i won't spend sort of ages going into <laughs> just sort of obscure french philosophy around it but i people are not obvious like People desire status and signaling as much as they desire, like just financial reward. And you've got to accept that people are rounded and and everything that goes with that. Yeah, I also think that delegation is just incredibly important. But I think like one of the reasons why it doesn't happen, um, even in corporate companies or in any walk of life, really, is because of that lack of empowerment you get when when you're young at university. Um, you know. In, in corporate companies, they don't give you those, those tasks that you feel empowered, like yeah. a bit like, I can actually do what I want in this job, I can do what I want as well. And you don't really get it at university either, like it, it's quite a hard thing to just find yourself. Um, but, you know, I, I'm building this this team with, with the graduate guide and, and a, lot, a lot of the lessons I'm learning is that delegation is definitely amazing because there are people who are far better than you yeah a load of things and you don't have to put all the time and effort into 
learning what they could do much better than you anyway. Um, however, I think the most difficult task is how do you hold them accountable in the way that you want? Like, because, you know, you can empower them, they can be good or whatever, but they've got to stay aligned with how you see things. That's the, that's the real frustration when it comes to delegation. Are they going to do it as if like your brain would do it? And yeah. I think generally just accountability is a difficult topic. I mean, how are you um, making sure you're keeping yourself and your team accountable within the business? Yeah. Um, I think at a at a, at a c-suite level you know we've we've got a c-suite of, of four or five we don't we don't set kpis because ultimately our job is is share price and, and growth if we can continue to grow you know revenue increase growth of customers just if the company's moving in the right direction that's that's generally it and that that sounds reductive and and we do obviously have sort of ways to hold ourselves to account more granularly than that I actually don't like KPIs across the board. I think KPIs are very, very easy to get wrong. Um, KPIs are a step, as I said, to sort of turning people into a, a cog in a machine. And I'm, I'm quite big on incentive design. And if you get the incentive slightly off in KPIs, you, you can absolutely kill a culture. So we, I, we have um, OKR subjectives and, and key results, which sort of waterfall down from what are the the you know, we've got this framework of objective, strategy, tactics. So what's the company objective? What's the strategy to get us there? And what are the individual tactics that, that sort of ladder up to that strategy? Um, so that waterfalls down from that to a degree, but we try to keep it a, a blend of quantitative and qualitative um, metrics. So yes, we, you know, customer service team, for example, yes, we expect you to do a certain number of inbound tickets. Um, we're not absolutely sort of fascist about that. And if you don't hit this, this, you're out. It's it's a little bit more of a range, um, but then the qualitative stuff around is your telephone manner very good? If a customer phones in, are you answering punctually? Are you going the extra mile for people? That like much more intangible stuff. I think where the incentive design bit comes in, if I just gave my team KPIs around, you've got to do this many tickets in a day, and then you go home, we'd lose all those soft soft skills around, you know. People go out of their way to train other members of the staff. People don't know how to do it. You know, that wouldn't happen if if I said to, to staff member A, just hit 50 tickets a day, and staff member B comes up to them and asks for some advice, they'd be, well, no, I'm not helping you because I've still got this many tickets to do. And it seems logical, but when things aren't going well, it's very, that's when it's hard and you get into that micromanagement piece of, come on, work harder, churn out this many things. So it, it's it's sort of sticking to your principles on, on that, um, you inherently know, managers inherently know which one of their team are, are pulling their weight, which are sort of not quite turning up for time, who are leaving at five o'clock dead on. Like, very, it, this is my first exposure to a C-suite sort of level of this this company. And, and, and we are sort of figuring it out as we go. You know, I think most startups, it, there's an element of that. I'm amazed the visibility that we have as senior leadership to actually what goes on in the company that I think when you're a staff member or an employee, you, you probably don't know they, your boss knows quite as much about you as, as you do. Um, obviously if it needs to get into like performance management and things like that, we have a very good um, people team. One of our co-founders is, is our chief people officer. They're exceptional at then putting in that more structured, like performance management piece, making sure people, people do it. I'm I'm operating much more on a yes I want data yes I want to sort of know that the the 
the core is being covered to fulfill our objectives but there is are there you know i'm sort of parroting myself but you know people are more complex than that and you've got to understand that different people perform differently also if somebody is if somebody is exceptional and then they don't hit their potential oh i'm far more annoyed with that than someone who's not quite as talented but is working beyond themselves it wouldn't be fair i don't think to to judge them all to the same standard in that and and have one person working at 40 percent but hitting their targets another person working at 110 percent and hitting those same targets it's just you've, you've sort of got to just accept it's a balance yeah so we've now been through what is homebox we've been through why and how people can get into homebox and we've been we've been through what to expect if you actually do work at homebox but as we come towards the end of the episode if I'm somebody thinking, oh, should I sign up for Homebox? Should I actually use it as a consumer? A, a quick trade of why someone should actually sign up to Homebox. Sell, sell Homebox. Wow. Yeah. yeah, marketing reports into me, so I should probably be better at this. Um, I I think, so Homebox is, is um, as I said, it's it's a, it's a effectively at the moment a utilities bundling tool. Um, we're really set up for convenience. So it, it's, I'd like to get it within the coming months to one click, set up your property, put in your postcode, set up. There's a little bit more today. We need to, you know, you need to select what tariffs you want, uh, who your energy provider are, who your internet provider is. But I think, look, if you want convenience, it's, it's all your, all your payments in, in, in one. So you've got that, that peace of mind each month that, that what's going out of the bank is, is there, it's done. You haven't got sort of a direct debit for your water going out that you forgot about in in three days' time, and you don't have to spend that time dealing with with bills, setting up. Am I on the right tariff? Am I not? Have I got exit fees? We do lots of of, of other really really lovely things. Um, offset the carbon from your home. Uh, we've got a partnership with a company called Canopy, whereby we bundle your payments in the form of of a subscription. So paying your utility bills um, and soon rent. We're about to to put rent into it as well. So paying the rent and bills actually contributes to your credit score. Right now it doesn't. So um, you actually start to build that credit profile for future. If you're a student, we provide contents insurance with Ensley at no extra cost. So just by being a customer, you've got, I think, £7,000 worth of contents insurance while you're at university. Um, life life perks. So we've got discount codes at high streets places. I mean, I, how compelling that is, I'm, I'm not sure. I think lots of, you know, most of these deals are available everywhere, but it's in, in one place. Um, so that's the offering now. I think where, where we want to go with it, we, we're working with Zoopla at the moment. We've, we've just built a new app um, whereby we're pulling in all of the Zoopla listings in the country. So, and then and then sort of layering on top the bills price for that. So when, you, when you're actually doing that property search, you've got absolute transparency on how much that, that property is going to cost you, um, which is, you know, I think really valuable you see the rent but then you've got to do that mental exercise of what's council tax on top of that what is is energy and we can we can pull historic usage of energy for that for that property so you've got a very very clear understanding of actually how much it's going to be um and then yeah as i say we we want to build those long-term relationships with customers so we are doing a good job for you we're giving back that little bit extra we're, we're removing a massive burden from your life um We've been working really hard the last couple of days to try and get the best fixed energy tariff in the UK. I think I'm sort of waiting to hear when I come out of this that 
this time tomorrow we will have the cheapest fixed energy tariff in the UK. Um, I, I'd love to get to the position where we are offering both convenience and the prices that come with economies of scale and passing those economies of scale onto consumers. Right now, we're we're probably we're not the absolute cheapest in the market. You could you could probably go out and get cheaper on on most of the products, but we're very much about the convenience and, and taking it away from you. Um, in time, we will continue to drive down those prices. So hopefully, we can be the easiest and the cheapest, and then it just becomes a you know it's a no brainer. Then why you know why wouldn't every property set up their bills with home books? Yeah, there's someone who's lived in London three years now as a student. I'm sold because it's not easy no. to work out all these things. And yeah, just I, I would pay that little bit extra just to make, uh, you know, it again, that convenience, like, you know, you've got so much going on in your life anyway. Like these, this is not one thing that you should have to worry about. Yeah. Um, and a final question to you, yeah. uh, which I ask all of my guests. Um, what is your definition of success? Because when you first like graduated from your university and you're going into finance, it's a big bank, you would have had some idea of what a successful career would look like to you. Yeah. But now, you know, with a baby, CEO of a company, like what is your idea of success and fulfillment in your career? Um, I don't know. I think uh, if you do... Maybe five years ago, I would it would have been very financially orientated. Um, I think as a as a as a young person, especially, edu- we're in this like constant cycle of competition, and and you're competing for the best A levels, for the best university place, then you're competing for the best internships, the best job, and kind of a side product of that becomes, I think, salary or bank balance as a as a performance indicator, right? and and. I think it's very easy to fall into that trap. I think probably a lot of the listeners are probably looking at that. You you know, you inevitably get drawn into which graduate scheme has the higher salary, which which law firm is the best. I think uh th- there's a there's a point in life where I think you're no like salary and ambition are obviously important. I think I'm probably a little bit more philosophical. I think what what's important to me is that I have something to strive for. I think it's that like acknowledgement that the chase is actually more important than the end goal. It's the the it's such a cliche and it's almost cringy to say, but like the journey is the <laughs> is the fun rather than the destination. It's the you know pre drinks are often better than the actual night out. It's so as long as you've you've got a big picture, even if it doesn't really come to fruition, the uh, the camaraderie, as well like startups working together for a, a shared goal as part of a team, um, is almost success in itself. Because I I wake up and I don't ever get those Sunday scaries, and you're never thinking. I mean, obviously there's meetings that I dread. So there's obviously like times that you're nervous, but. You're never there on a Sunday night going, I just can't face waking up at 6 a.m. and getting the train into work tomorrow. Um, so it's not like a clear definition of success. I'd still, you know, I'd still love to exit this company for for a really good amount of money and and maybe, you know, be externally deemed as successful. But I know then that it would just be that barometer of success would just shift further down the road. And then you go, well, actually, what's the next, what's the next one? Um, I'm not like secure enough to just go. I want to be happy and like, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a process, not a destination. All right. Thanks so much. For Thank on. you very much. You've been great. Cheers. Thank you.